And he called him and said to him, What is this I hear about you? Turn in the account of your management, for you can no longer be a manager. And the manager said to himself, What shall I do since my master is taking the management away from me? I am not strong enough to dig. I am ashamed to beg. I have decided what to do, so that I, when I am removed from management, people will receive me into their houses. So summoning his master's debtors one by one, he said to the first, How much do you owe my master? And he said, A hundred measures of oil. He said to him, Take your bill and sit down and write fifty. Then he said to another, And how much do you owe? He said, A hundred measures of wheat. He said, Take your bill and write eighty. The master commended the dishonest manager for his shrewdness. For the sons of this world are more shrewd in dealing with their own generation than the sons of light. We'll get back to the text in a few minutes. This parable, in a number of the commentaries and books I looked up, is described as one of the hardest parables to understand. So, let's try it. Again and again, scholars debate on what's really going on in this parable. There's a number of challenges, and obviously it seems like the bad guy is getting praised for doing dishonest work. So what is going on? Well, there's a number of issues in this passage, but there are three in particular that we've got to deal with before we can really get into the story. The, the three questions are this. What is the relationship between the rich man and the manager? We've got to understand the relationship before we can understand the parable. Second, what is this discount the manager gives to these people? And third, what is the action that's really being praised by the rich man about this manager? So question number one, what is the relationship between this rich man and the manager? In those days, if you were wealthy, you could have certain people that would take care of your estate. Some people were just like, more like accountants. So they just sort of kept track of the estate. Others could do business for you. They could write checks for you. There weren't checks in that day, but you normally had a seal or a lot of times it would be on a ring. So people could go and do business as the rich guy if you're the manager. Or we're not sure, maybe this manager is more of a record keeper. So the manager is overstepping his bounds in doing a lot of this work. Why is this important? It's important because there's some question in the story as to whether the real story is about the manager or the rich man. One of the suggestions has been that this manager is like Jesus, giving grace to a bunch of people, and it is offending the, the, the rich man who's supposed to be like the, uh, the Jewish leadership. I'm not sure that explanation, while interesting, really fits the story. I think it seems more plausible that the manager is, is like a more traditional manager in this sense. He's doing business as the rich man. The rich man has got fingers and all kinds of stuff, and he can't keep track of it all. So he's got people that go out and do business for him. Maybe this is, he manages the vineyard, or he manages the trade, or he manages the foreign trade. Uh, he's sort of like a v, VP of operations for this rich guy. I think that's more likely what's going on in the story. Question number two, what is the discount that this manager gives to the people? Well, the hundred measures of oil, uh, some translations say baths of oil. That was actually, that's probably the better translation. It's a, it's a unit of measurement, a bath. Okay. This would have been a lot, probably about 900 gallons of oil, 
probably about a year's worth of 146 olive trees. And so when, the, when he says 100, write 50, he basically cuts the, the, uh, the, what he owes in half. This is the equivalent of about 500 denarii is what he gives him off. So 500 denarii, a denarii is a normal workman's day's wage. So 500, so almost two years of labor. So figure average person working for two years. That's the discount this guy has, gives. This is not a small amount of money. This is a lot of money we're talking about. A lot of money in the debt and a lot of money in the discount. This one, half is discounted. The second one owes 100 cores of wheat, but he tells him to write 80. This is a, uh, a lower percentage, right? 20%. But interestingly, when you do the math, it's almost the same amount of money. It's about 500 denarii again. He gives about 500 days wages off to both characters. For one, it's worth a lot more, but it's still the same amount. Now, why does he give this money off? Well, some have suggested that maybe that's what he was stealing. Maybe he's been writing these debts for a lot more than they're worth. And that's why he's getting in trouble and getting fired for mismanaging the estate. Um, But the text doesn't seem to say that. It just seems to say that he gives these discounts so that those people will be nice to him. Think about it. He's getting fired, right? That you don't right away out of college get a job as the vice president of operations for a rich company, right? He's probably older. He can't go dig. If he's fired by one manager, he's going to have a lot of trouble finding a job with another manager. So it seems like what he does is he just slashes people's debts, part of them off, so that these people will be nice. He's making friends, right? That's what he's doing. He's making friends and protecting his butt for when he's fired. Okay? Question number three. What is being praised in the action of this manager? Well, I don't think that the dishonest manager is being praised for being dishonest. That's been the suggestion that some people have said, and that's why people don't like this parable. But if you notice, he's called the dishonest manager. Okay, He's not being praised for being dishonest. I don't think the Bible is saying that if you're dishonest and cheat people, that you will get ahead. That's not the Bible's promise. But he's being prayed for his shrewdness. And what does that mean means his smarts, thinking on his feet, being considerate, prudent, discreet, intelligent, wise. Okay? It's a smart move. You're going to get fired. You don't know what to do. You make some very wealthy friends. That's what you do. Hopefully you get taken care of in your retirement, or at least they will owe him a favor. So, having talked about a couple of the issues, let's understand the story. The rich man hires this man to work on his estate. To run some of his larger debts, seems like. But is he stealing? He's at least mismanaging. He's not doing a good job keeping track of these. Maybe he's not collecting money from these people or something that gets him fired. He's given his notice. You got two weeks. Turn in your books. You're done. What's he going to do? He's he's probably older. Probably can't can't dig, won't beg, doesn't know what he's going to do. Not going to be able to get a new job. Notice he makes no defense. Did you catch that in the story? He makes no defense. Not, not, oh no, not me, I didn't do that. No, it's pretty evident in the story. He did it. He did it, he knows it, he knows he's getting fired. He doesn't defend it at all. But now he makes this shrewd move. He gets this idea. I'm going to make some wealthy friends. 
I'm going to give them discounts while I still got the ring, while I still got the ability, whatever I do, the rich man has to, my boss has to honor the arrangements that I sign off on. And these are big amounts, big amounts of money that he gets off to make some good friends or at least get owed some favors. The expectation is that the master is going to be furious. Don't you think the master would be furious? That's the surprising part of the parable. Don't you think that master would be angry? You just cost me four years of regular labor. That's how much money you just cost me. And yet the master, in this surprise, instead of getting him in trouble, of course we don't know if he still got him in trouble, but the master at least admires the shrewdness of this manager, the creativity he has. It's a wonder if that manager hadn't used that shrewdness earlier, if he might have kept his job and been a pretty good manager. But he seems to only manage in self-preservation. So what is the message of the parable? Well, there are a bunch of different attempts to explain it. I've already mentioned judging Israel, if Jesus is the dishonest manager. been a lot of stuff about uh, end times tried to be brought out of this passage. But, but if you keep reading, it seems that Jesus, in Luke's words, gives an explanation. Four lessons from the parable, and I think that the parable also lends itself to a fifth. So let me pick back up in verse 8 again. The master commended the dishonest manager for his shrewdness. For the sons of this world are more shrewd in dealing with their own generation than the sons of light. And I tell you, make friends for yourselves by means of unrighteous wealth, so that when it fails, they may receive you in the eternal dwellings. One who is faithful in very little is also faithful in much, and one who is dishonest in a very little is also dishonest in much. If then you have not been faithful, if you have not been faithful in the unrighteous wealth, who will entrust you to true riches? And if you have been faithful in, in that which is another's, who will give you that which is your own? No servant can serve two masters, for he will either hate the one and love the other, or he will be devoted to one and despise the other. You cannot serve God and money. Lesson number one, Christians ought to be shrewd. I don't mean cheating people, but I mean creative. Why aren't Christians more creative? We worship a God who created creativity. He's the creative one, right? Any God who invents an elephant or a platypus is creative, right? And we're made in that God's image. Christians ought to have the best books. We ought to have the best movies. We ought to have the best painting. I heard author Rob Bell say one time that Christians is a, Christian is a great noun and a terrible adjective. It's great to talk about Christian, but somehow when we put Christian in front of another word to describe it, it just doesn't sound as good, right? A Christian movie. Why can't we just make movies? Christian music. Why do we have to have the adjective? We as Christians ought to be creative. We ought to be shrewd. We ought to be smart. We ought to be thinking outside the box. Christians have been thinking way too much in the box for way too long. We've got to think of new ways to do church, new ways to reach out to people, new ways to live our lives. All the great artists, Raphael, Donatello, Leonardo, a lot of us guys remember them all as Ninja Turtles, but they were also artists. And they were artists, and where did they do their best art? In the church. 
The church hired the best artists, developed the best artists. Some of the best science came out of people of the church. Where has that gone? Shrewdness. I think we should be shrewd. Number two, Christians ought to make friends. It's okay to splurge, but it's best to splurge on other people. Right? Part of this is that your money doesn't go with you. Right? That's what it means when it's talking about unrighteous wealth. It's worldly wealth. It's not that important. It doesn't go with you. If you're going to spend it, spend it on making friends. Christians ought to be the best friends, the best neighbors, the most caring and forthright and kind and generous people. We ought to spend our time making friends. But you know what we do as Christians? Often we, we, like, we live in our own little bubble. We only hang out with Christians and we only hang out with certain people or we just hang out with ourselves and we just spend on ourselves. It's a particularly American problem, by the way. We ought to be the best friends. We ought to splurge, invest, not just our money, but our time and our energy in friendship. Lesson number three, be, be faithful. Christians ought to be the most faithful people. When, when God gives you a little bit to steward, you, we ought to be the best at it. We ought to take whatever friendships, whatever gifts, whatever money, we ought to be smart with it. We ought to be careful. Whatever, whatever relationships, whatever insights, whatever truth, whatever art we have inside of us, we ought to be careful in stewarding that so that God gives us more. When we go to work, we ought to be the best employees. Because we're God, if God says if, if, if in this text, if you are trusted with somebody else's stuff, you ought to be good for it. You ought to take care of it. Because then God's going to give you stuff. And you want, he wants you to be prepared to take care of that. Christians ought to be the most faithful. Lesson number four comes out of this last verse. You can't serve two masters. The Bible has a lot of paradoxes. The last will be first, the first will be last. He who must save his life will lose it. A lot of times the Bible is both and, but there's one place where the Bible is consistently either or, and that's with God and money. Not that money is a bad thing, money is important. Okay? Money is a good thing if it's not everything. But money is the one thing the Bible seems to say over and over again is going to come between you and your relationship with God. And I'm really sorry, I want to apologize, that the church for generations has only talked about money when they want it. I have really tried at this church to talk about money in a different way because it's not really about what we want. And the capital campaign isn't near as important as what's going on in your own heart with your own money. And that's why we have to talk about it. That's why we have to pastor. Because if, if you, by Jesus says, where your treasure is there, your heart will be also. Where your wallet goes, that's where your heart goes. And if you want to lead your heart, you've got to pay attention to your wallet. It's the one thing that can really come between you and God. And you got to be careful with it. Now, there's one other lesson, I think, from this passage. And that is to trust in grace. I'm amazed that this shrewd manager, who's already going to get fired, risks taking off the rich man. Did you catch that in the story? Takes this big risk. Right? I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to jip him of two years of, or four years of wages and all. Okay? Why? He, he can only do that if he trusts that the rich man is gracious enough to forgive him of that. That's an amazing amount of trust on the grace of the rich man. And he, and, and he seems to be right, correct? 
I mean, when the rich man sees this move, he says, man, that was a shrewd move. We're not sure how gracious he was afterwards. So we don't know the rest of that conversation. But he, the man bets on grace. And he ends up being right. I think we ought to bet on grace. We ought to trust in grace. That when we spend our finances, we ought to trust that God's got us. When we invest in friendship, when we try to be faithful at work, that God has our back. And if we live that way, that I think is what's going to make us the most creative, most faithful, most friendly of people on this earth. That's where I think God wants us to be. Let us pray. Lord, we are thankful for this story, hard as it might be to understand at times. We are thankful because we know you want us to be more. You want to do more through us. And we pray you would help us. In Jesus' name, amen.